Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to episode 518 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. Uh, just Adam today for this intro and for the interview I did, which is with Dr. Keisha Blaine, who is the co-editor of the brand new and extraordinary 400 Souls. Uh, she co-edited this uh, collection of essays with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who's been on the podcast uh, last year, uh, 400 Souls is a history of the 400 years from 1619 to 2019 of African-American history. And it's simply remarkable how they put this project together. Uh, Almost 100 uh, black writers wrote essays on five-year kind of chunks throughout that history of uh, individuals and laws and massive things that you may have heard of and massive figures in African-American and American history that you may know of and some others that you may not. Um, And it just all stacks on top of each other to really dive into the true breadth of systemic racism that has been going on in this country um, since its onset. We had a, a really great conversation about just simply how Dr. Blaine and Dr. Kendi were able to put this project together and the coordination that they had to do and the planning and just so much, uh, so much went into this. It's, it's a stunning book. Um, I, I mentioned this at the end of the podcast, but I truly don't think there's a more important book that will come out this year. Um, I'm so excited for you to hear us discuss it. Um, and more so, I'm, I'm so excited for you all to read this book. Uh, also, we talk about the audiobook. If you are a fan of audiobooks, you will be a fan of this. As I mentioned, there's almost 100 writers. Um, they have almost as many narrators as well, uh, voices that you'll recognize and that you won't. But um, <laughs> the, the audiobook, which I was able to get my hands on uh, a few days ago as well, is just stunning. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. I would love your feedback. Um, you can always, of course, reach us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. You can uh, send us a tweet or an Instagram message uh, at ProBookNerds on both of those. Um, or you can leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, that helps us see your feedback and also helps other people find the podcast, which we always love. Um, I, I think that's just about everything. I, I don't want to keep you any longer because this this book is just essential reading and this was a really fantastic conversation. So Uh, Without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Dr. Keisha Blaine on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. What we always do with the start of our podcast is we always love to have the author again, you know, the the person responsible for the project sort of introduce the book. So could you give our listeners um, a little bit of an introduction to 400 Souls? 400 Souls 
uh, is an exciting new project, which essentially examines the history of Black America for 400 years. It begins in 1619 and ends in 2019. I'm really interested in learning about how this project came together because I know this isn't the first crowdsourced thing you've done, and I also know it's not the first thing you've edited, but there's it being 400 years of history and there being so many authors involved. How did this project kind of come to light? Ibram and I, um, we have been collaborating for many years since about 2016. Uh, and uh, in 2018, we started talking about 400 Souls. Ibram, of course, was uh, thinking immediately about the 400 year mark mm -hmm. uh, that was approaching in 2019. And the question was, how do we commemorate this particular moment? How do we uh, potentially bring uh, black writers together uh, in a unique project that would not only reflect on the history, but be history uh, in and of itself, because we were trying to come up with a project that would simply be different than any other book or any, any other edited volume uh, that has ever been published. And 400 Souls uh, really came out of this vision of reflecting on the history, but bringing together diverse voices uh, and also bringing together so many writers, 90 total, uh, all black writers uh, to each grapple with an aspect of the history and certainly with a specific period of the history uh, through a variety of genres. And I think um, that the final product truly captures the vision of this book, which is a community history and uh, clearly uh, a community, a robust community is represented here. The breadth of people who are involved in this project is exceptional. And I almost hesitate to ask, but how did you go about getting so many writers? Because there are, there's debut authors, there's best-selling authors, there's people who write for high, high profile websites. Like there's so many different, there's poet, you know, there's, um, there's, there's mm -hmm. poets. How did you go about like collecting and then, and con I, and like, contacting these people? Like, I just imagine the coordination to put this together had to be second to you know nothing that you have you've done so far in your career. You're absolutely correct. Uh, in fact, during the first few weeks of planning this project, one of the things that we did was we spent a lot of time talking about who we'd want to invite. And it was really a conversation about identifying who we both agreed would be excellent contributors excellent writers, but also we were trying to make sure that we didn't just have historians, you know, professional historians writing. We wanted a mix of writers and we wanted a mix of genres represented in the project. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of discussion. And we also identified the themes for each writer. And we also identified the time period for each writer. Um, in some cases, when we presented the idea to a writer, they, uh, in most cases, I think people liked the, you know, they certainly liked the, the topic because we tried to pair them with a theme or a particular focus that was very much tied to their writing mm -hmm. uh, and to their research and expertise. Uh, and in other cases, uh, some people 
responded and said, you know, I, I like this particular topic, but would you consider if I change it to something else, which feels you know, a bit more comfortable? Uh, and so it, it was certainly a negotiation, a process by which we would talk to authors and make sure that they're comfortable with um, their assigned topic. And we also made sure that we gave them the resources that they would need, uh, particularly for writers who were working on earlier aspects of the history, who mm -hmm. might not have easy access to primary sources and documents uh, as we do as historians. So we, we shared those documents with them. We, we, we gave uh, whatever help we could uh, as historians to guide them through the process of writing. I'm, I'm so glad that you, you brought up the, the structure of every author taking kind of this like this five year um, section of history. And I was, I was really, really curious about that. You kind of answered my question about suggesting topics for each writer, because in some instances, it's not even that their particular five-year period is about a major thing. Um, like there's a there's a section about Bacon's Rebellion, but then there's also you know sections about individual you know African American women who had a singular experience. So for I feel like first off, there's no way that anyone other than like you and Dr. Kendi could have put this together, being historians, but. Were there things that while you were planning this out that you may have learned along the way that perhaps even you guys didn't know before presenting it to an author? Or were these things that you've both, you know, because of your your career in this aspect mm -hmm. of, of knowing, I guess, were there things you were discovering along the ways as well? Yes, there were so many things that we discovered along the way. And I think that's what's so exciting about doing a community history. Uh, so here we are as professional historians, we, we write about uh, black history, we certainly teach history, and we pretty much had a good sense of all the topics we wanted covered. We knew all the key figures we wanted to be represented. Mm -hmm. uh, we certainly knew which cities or regions needed to be um, highlighted in the project. But through the process of discussing these topics with authors, there was one instance where we had reached out to uh, Harriet Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, and initially, of course, uh, this is just a remarkable writer um, who works on race and, and medicine. Um, and we had our own ideas for what she should write about. Uh, and when we initially pitched the idea, her response was, well, I have another idea for you. I'm working on this new project on this fascinating figure, James uh, McCune Smith. Mm -hmm. uh, who's a doctor that neither of us had heard of. And she said, you know, would you consider an essay on his life and his contributions to the field of medicine, but also uh, it would grapple with many of the core themes of the project as you've laid them out. And so it was certainly a situation where we had no idea what to expect, but we trust uh, Harriet Washington uh, as a brilliant uh, scholar and writer. And we said, okay, as long as it fits within the time mm. period, go ahead. And we received that first draft. And I think for both of us, uh, we didn't know the history. It was, this was the first time we were, we were reading about this figure, but it is a truly remarkable essay uh, and uh, turned out to be uh, one of the best, I think, uh, in the volume. So, so that was just an example of how bringing people together as a community allowed space and opportunity for new insights and revelations. And I really do love those, the the frequent focus on individual people during a time frame, um, just because I think when presenting 
a story, you know, a, a history with, with the breadth of what 400 Souls has, I think if you say an overarching thing to someone like, oh, there has been 400 years of systemic racism and laws that are, you know, affecting Black Americans and have been for all these years. I think if you say it like broadly like that, someone may just kind of nod their head and say, yeah, I absolutely. But by showing these individual examples of saying like, here is a law that happened in Virginia in, you know, 1671. Mm -hmm. And here is a individual that it specifically affected. I think that just we as humans sometimes need those individual stories to better frame just mm -hmm. how much and how long this has been happening. I really, I love that that those frequent focuses of individual people was such a major part of this. I suppose this isn't really a, a question. So it was me just kind of heaping praise onto you, but it's, <laughs> I really love that. I, th I think it's so important to do that to, you know, was that something that you and Dr. Kendi wanted to make sure that you were highlighting throughout the entire, the entire book? Yes, and in fact, when it came to individuals, we were clear from the beginning that we wanted to highlight uh, key figures in African American history. We certainly could not figure, uh, we could not highlight every single key figure in African American mm -hmm. history. But for example, we knew that we wanted an essay on Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. um, we knew that we would want an essay that would center the life and the activism of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, for example, mm -hmm. or we wanted uh, an essay that would give people uh, some insight into the, uh, the life of, of someone like Ida B. Wells. At the same time, we did not want to simply uh, produce a textbook, right? So this right. is not going to be um, a volume where you would just have all of these individual narratives and all of these profiles of key figures. Um, but you would certainly encounter key figures alongside of lesser known figures mm -hmm. who add much complexity, I think, and, and dynamism really to the story. And so in the case of Harriet Washington's essay, this is an example of a focus on an individual who most people have no idea of. And for them, this is the first time they're encountering this person's story yet they can read the story and see the connections to someone like Frederick Douglass, who they certainly already know, uh, and other key figures. So it was, it was very important for us to make sure that we were not only telling the narratives uh, that people might expect, um, but particularly that we were giving aspects of the history that would be new and original. Something else I love that shines through in if not every section almost every section is kind of like I was mentioning before the the various laws that were written into the government at various times that have that show and truly highlight these policies that have always you know again like kind of been stacking the deck against African Americans even policies more recently that were meant to that appear to be meant to help African-American communities. Um, you mentioned that there's a section towards the end of the book about the you know, housing policies and then how that leads to you know, fraud and corruption and all of these different things. I, I love how you have that, not just in the latter aspect of the book when it's, you know, closer to modern times, but 
I think it's so important for people who may never have read like the new Jim Crow or, you know, things of like those books that exist that to, to understand fully, not just what the laws say today, but where those laws have always come from. So was there a balance where you and Dr. Kendi wanted to show these laws, but maybe not make this kind of like, like, like you said, maybe not make this like a legal book or a, a textbook. Like how did you balance where to put those various laws and, and when to focus on those types of things? Or was that just something that there's been so many laws over the years that mm-hmm. it's not hard to find the ones to, to highlight? Well, we certainly wanted to highlight uh, key uh, legal cases, which undeniably shaped uh, and continue to shape um, Black life in the United States. And immediately, one of the first uh, things that we thought about within the more modern context uh, is the Shelby ruling, Mm -hmm. which was important to focus on because what is clear in the book is as you move from decade to decade, you can see progress, certainly. And you can see all of these triumphs and these wins uh, for Black people in the United States. When you get to that last section and you read um, this essay um, by Karine Jean-Pierre on the Shelby ruling, it's a moment I think uh, that I suspect will have people sort of stopping and really pausing and reflecting because it shows that even as we're able to celebrate the wins, we're able to talk about all of the progress, uh, it's clear that all of these gains could simply vanish uh, in a moment, right? And, And the Shelby ruling shows that even when you can celebrate the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 65, that here is a situation where all of those rights Uh, can be taken away. Uh, And it reminds, I think, the reader of the significance of the law uh, in really shaping the lives of uh, Black Americans, but quite frankly, all Americans. Uh, And it's so vital to the story that I think in some ways it was impossible to escape uh, laws and, and, um, and, and ruling. So even just thinking about the Brown case Mm-hmm. That, we, that we focus on, uh, the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education case, another example um, of a development that, that many would argue launched the modern civil rights movement and still has implications uh, for uh, education in the US today. So part of what we were trying to do was show the history, but really draw the threads and connections to the present So it will be very clear to the reader how history certainly shapes the present realities and and how it has the potential to shape the future, uh, but also the the, the significant point that this is an ongoing struggle and we can't simply celebrate the wins without protecting those wins. take a quick break from this conversation with Dr. Blaine to talk about today's sponsor, which is our fabulous friends at Literati. Great children's books open up worlds of discovery for kids. And with Literati Kids, your your child can explore uncharted places every single month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. We are in the 
just throes of winter right now here in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, that means long nights, cold days, and just it's tough to want to get off the couch. And so the way that I've been spending so many hours is reading books. Um, not only am I reading books for myself, but I'm also spending a lot of time on FaceTime with my nieces and nephews, uh, reading books to them. And the books that we are reading are the books that they're all getting from their Literati Kids subscription. It's just so great to see how excited they get. Um, my brother and sister send me now monthly videos of their children getting their Literati Kids books uh, delivered to them. They come in this box that they know is for them. They get super excited, even the youngest one who's two recognizes the box and it gets really, really excited. Uh, Literati Kids is a Try Before You Buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. Uh, they have age-based book clubs that ensure appropriate reads for your budding bookworms, whether they're snuggling with you for story time or letting their imagination roam free, or if they happen to be FaceTiming their favorite uncle and enjoying a little bit of reading together. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. Listen, we've been talking about literati for a long time, and if you haven't jumped on board, now is just a perfect time. It's such a wonderful tool and also a present, and it's just so many different things that uh, you're really going to love giving the kids in your life. If you head to literati.com slash probooknerds, you can get 25% off your first two orders. Select your children's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. That's literati.com slash probooknerds. It's the only place you're going to get 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription. One last time, that's literati.com slash probooknerds. This book is so you know, all-encompassing and more in the sense that it shows the hundreds of years of systemic racism, systemic racism that really this country was built upon. And I've had a, a few people ask me a question that I, I kind of want to ask. I want to ask you, and, and you can, if you mm-hmm. would prefer not to answer it, I, I'm totally okay with that. But it's a question that I've asked, um, been fortunate to, to create some relationships with um, Leila Saad and Kimberly mm-hmm. Jones and, and a few other um, activists who are very vocal. I've had a number of people who have conservative people in their life and their family that just don't believe that systemic racism exists and they refuse mm-hmm. to read books and things like that. And they, they've asked me you know, at, to ask authors. And, and I'm just curious, as a historian, I, I'm, I don't know if you are asked this type of question much about how do you go about approaching those people, but is it something that you think about like approaching these people who just flat out don't believe these things exist? Well, my approach uh, as an educator is always to provide information for Mm -hmm. those who are willing to receive that information. And when I teach a class on any topic, I understand that I will have students who come with an open mind and they're Mm -hmm. ready to hear from me and they're ready to learn. And then I'll have some students who are there for a range of different reasons but perhaps they feel compelled to be there from, for some requirement and they're not actually interested in learning. They're not interested in, in changing and transforming in mm-hmm. any kind of way. Uh, as an educator, it's so important for me to provide the information to both groups uh, and to do so in the most compelling way that I can. Uh, and also to give them the tools and the resources uh, in order to help guide them I've seen students who uh, showed up in the classroom with their, you know, essentially with a wall up, 
And I've seen them over the course of 15 weeks, uh, put the wall down and begin to open up themselves to all kinds of new ideas. Uh, and so I do believe that education broadly knowledge is power and mm -hmm. transformative. So I take that approach in trying to reach people. So I still try to reach people, even if they say to me, listen, I, I have this particular political point of view and I don't really, uh, I'm not open to changing, that's okay. But if you're open to listening, mm -hmm. I'll share the information and maybe you'll find that with time uh, that you go through a period of change. If not, there's nothing I can do other than mm -hmm. at least uh, feel a sense of accomplishment that I tried yeah. and I did my best. That makes a lot of sense. I, it's so interesting to hear the the different people who and how different people approach. Like I said, I, I, Kimberly Jones. Well, she she's openly told me she's like send people who don't believe it to me. I will <laughs> educate them in my own way. And then you know, Layla Saad, yeah. she she likes to tell people she's like I wrote a whole book called Me and White Supremacy. Open it before you come and ask me a question, which I think is very very um, intelligent mm -hmm. too. Um, there's an, another aspect of this that I, I mentioned you know, at the beginning that there's there's poets in this and you have each section mm -hmm. that kind of, I don't want to say summed up, but approached, each, you have each section approached at the end with a poet mm -hmm. presenting um, sort of an, an, an abstract view of everything that was just gone through. Was that something that you guys always knew that you wanted mm -hmm. to present in here? It, it gives like a really lovely, both like, like a nice like way to round up a, a whole section and it's so wonderful but was that something that was always a part of your plan yes uh this was one of the first things that we decided um and part and there's various reasons why we wanted to in include poets uh first we we thought about the kinds really the the diverse group of people who would encounter the book and we, we certainly know that some people will, will read the book and get a lot out of the essays written by historical, you know, by uh, professional historians. Mm -hmm. uh, others will read those essays, find them informative, but, but, more, but maybe get more out of uh, a shorter piece, a shorter creative piece written by um, a creative writer or, or a journalist maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were thinking that it would be important to include poets um, who would present the information in a very different way. So mm -hmm. this is, so the delivery would be different and therefore reach, I think, a broader audience or, or certainly a group of individuals who, who might not otherwise pick up a book mm -hmm. with essays on history. And we also thought it would give the reader a break because we're imagining someone reading mm -hmm. this from beginning to end. And uh, you know, once you make it past, you know, eight or nine essays, I think uh, you you sort of need a break before you mm. enter the new decade. And, and the poem uh, provides that break for you. But what mm. it also does is that it intentionally uh, compels you to reflect on everything you've just read. So one of the things that we did in putting together the volume, every single poet received uh, the essays that appeared before their poem. And so this was a way to ensure that they were essentially writing, um, they were crafting their poems with those essays in mind. And so if it feels like it sort of summarizes or reflects, mm -hmm. then that's exactly what we were hoping for. Wow, that is 
the foresight by you that is amazing that is so smart and you're, it absolutely that's that's beautiful i i have i love that so much and something else that uh, i think people are going to uncover and discover and truly love is the audiobook version um yes. which i was just sent actually last night and i was listening to so much of it it's so beautiful i it's described i think i saw it described in either a uh, an article you an essay you did or uh, an interview mm-hmm. uh, kind of like a chorus right every once in a while a book comes out that has this type of a uh, ensemble or cast if you will mm-hmm. how one was a few years ago george saunders lincoln and the bardo had like 130 mm-hmm. or some absurd amount of people and <laughs> We were fortunate enough to talk to him. We asked him, we're like, how involved in, in that were you? And he's like, I wasn't. I had like one famous friend who then had a lot of famous <laughs> friends. Um, so for you guys, how did you go about putting that together? Or was that something that the publisher was like, hey, we think we can do something here. I'm always, this is so fascinating to me, the, the dichotomy between the two. Yeah, no, we were doing the work behind the scenes. Uh, in fact, um, it's really funny because we were, once we finalized the list, mm-hmm. we put together a very detailed uh, uh, invitation, just explaining the goals of the project and the deadlines and everything. And one by one, uh, what we, we sort of split it up. So uh, if Ibram had a, a close tie to a particular writer, then he would send the invite and copy me. Uh, but if it's someone that I knew well, I would send the invite <laughs> and copy him. And so it just became, uh, we just had, our inboxes were filled with <laughs> <laughs> at one point. And uh, another thing that we did too, which was, I think in retrospect, it, it just worked out so well um, is that we broke up the, the project section by section mm. so that we wouldn't be overwhelmed. And so one section had a particular deadline. So we knew, okay, we're expecting a group of essays uh, in, a, in a few weeks. And then another section had a deadline perhaps six weeks later. So we knew that we wouldn't have you know, 20 essays at once to go mm-hmm. through. So we really tried to approach this with care. Um, and we really did read every essay and edit every essay carefully, uh, which is hard as you can imagine with very busy schedules. But I think we were just both committed to producing um, just a, a fabulous text. And we wanted to make sure that we were intimately involved uh, in the mm-hmm. process. And, and we also wanted to make sure that, that I think readers could could sort of see our editorial hand, mm-hmm. um, even as they were going through. So authors did revise. Uh, you know, some some authors, uh, I think, were able to revise quicker than others. But we certainly, <laughs> uh, we, we you know, we made people work. We it was sort of funny to have these like amazing authors who won all these awards, and we we mm-hmm. respect and then happen to say, "Thank you so much. You're brilliant." But can you edit this? <laughs> can you revise this section? And thankfully, people had a good attitude about it. They were just uh, very excited to be involved. And uh, so it turned out to be a great experience. I, I'm just imagining somewhere where no one else's eyes will ever see it, but you and Dr. Kennedy, there's like a Google, like a shared Google Doc or something that is just <laughs> like the biggest, most elaborate planning document that's ever been yes, created. Yes, <laughs> lots of planning. It's, it's really funny. Just, uh, but you have to be organized for a project like this. Uh, you you have to know okay do I have the first draft is this the second draft you know what am I missing so lots of grids and it was um, 
a huge undertaking, but, you know, I would also, I just give a shout out to, we had an editorial, we had a, a research assistant, mm-hmm. uh, Adam McNeil, who's a graduate student uh, at Rutgers, and uh, he was really helpful, and, you know, I think he was feeling the, the, the stress and the intensity of it all, too, because we were just both like, you know, did you upload this? Did you upload that? And, <laughs> but, uh, but it was, it was great, I think, um, of course, when we started the project, this was before COVID-19. And by the time we were coming toward the end, I think we both felt a greater sense of appreciation for the project and that sense of community uh, as we were, I think the two of us, plus really everyone, I, you know, I think in the nation, just grieving and, and, and dealing with the challenges that we're facing uh, collect- collectively, in so many ways, the project became a lifeline. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to say, like, I genuinely don't think there will be a more important book that comes out this year. And I, I keep telling people, you know, just because an election has come and gone and an inauguration has come and gone, that, that doesn't mean systemic racism and hatred and bigotry goes away. And so books like this coming out and, you know, continuing conversations and I just think it's, it's so important and I, the, it's so moving. And first off, I just want to say, thank you to you and Dr. Kendi for taking what could have only been untold numbers of hours to put this project together. Um, And we always leave our podcast with one last question for the authors is, what do you hope readers take away from reading this book? I hope readers really get a sense of the strength and resiliency of, of Black people in the United States and it's clear when you start uh, at 1619, and as we explained in the introduction, and uh, that the story even extends uh, much earlier, but when you look at how far we have come, uh, it's, it's truly remarkable. And there's still a lot of work uh, to be done. The struggle continues, but I hope that people are moved and inspired by that strength and resiliency. That's absolutely perfect. Dr. Blaine, it was such an honor to have you on. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.